From KCRW, I'm Evan Kleiman, and you're listening to Good Food. On Monday of this week, my phone blew up with friends and colleagues asking the same question. Did you hear that Noma is closing? What do you think? Did you already know? For a certain crowd, news that Noma, often called the best restaurant in the world, would end its traditional restaurant service and morph into something new, seemed to eclipse an attempted coup in Brazil and catastrophic floods in Northern California as the biggest news of the day. But such is the power of Rene Redzepi. The three-star Michelin chef who is credited with starting a food movement is compelling not just for his food, which is beautiful, creative, and delicious, but for his persistent curiosity and his willingness, perhaps his insistence on change. Just before the holidays, I had the opportunity to interview Brene about Noma 2.0 and the resulting book that documents the years that he and his team spent creating seasonal menus under the themes Vegetable, Forest, and Ocean. Listening to it now, I can hear him teasing the changes to come. Hi, Brene. Hello. You know, I've, I've, I've thought a lot about how so many of our worlds have contracted during the past couple of years and how easy it is to fall into old patterns. Um, in, in the introduction to the new book, you, you say it takes discipline to be curious. Can you please talk a bit about that? I think we could all use a pep talk. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, creativity... We've been open 20 years soon, and uh, our whole life is searching for creativity, and that is what fuels me and drives my everyday life. It's actually what makes me happy. And um, over the years, I've just come to uh, discover that as much as uh, creativity is also about just going venturing into the unknown, you still need to have a frame around it. And that frame takes a lot of discipline to create, to maintain, to withhold, to be in. That's something that I've had to learn over the years, just how important discipline is, even for creativity. It's, it's simply just going into your creative space and saying, I'm going to be here, shut off all my phones, shut everything off that's a distraction, and I'm just going to go to work with this group of people. Um, and that in itself in today's world can be hard enough just to shut off your phone, right? For four hours. But that's an example of a discipline uh, that we do. Another discipline is that I tell myself that for every amazing idea that we have, we need to find 10 ideas to put into our minds. And finding 10 ideas, meaning that you actually have to take the time to go somewhere else that's not work or read a book or talk to someone else that's not always in your circle. The, the equation that we have is one idea out, 10 ideas in. And so the discipline of that to actually every week, every month to allow yourself the time to read or be curious about a new subject or go to see an art show, stuff like that. That actually also takes uh, a lot of discipline. But if you do that, you can actually replenish your, your mind with fresh ideas constantly. It's so interesting that you chose to do what you did the revamping of Noma, which you closed in 2018, and you moved it across the water, creating an entirely new space from a kind of um, prepossessing 
environment. That must have been terrifying for you to shutter a successful restaurant. Yeah, it was terrible. And I remember um, the, on the last day of closing, I was, uh, I was uh, a nervous wreck and for many months afterwards still. But I also knew deep down in my heart and in my soul and every fiber of my body that doing something new would raise all these new questions that we wouldn't otherwise have raised with ourselves. And so for, when we decided, let's close this old Noma, we're so successful. It's amazing. It's full all the time. We have all this, this success, but yet the creativity seems to be drying up somewhat. And as soon as we made that decision and we found that new location to move in, we start thinking about everything that we did. You know, it just raised all these questions. And suddenly we saw seasonality in a fresh, with a fresh perspective. And we could see that, hey, we've been playing around with this one menu all year long with a rolling change throughout the year of dishes. When what we should be doing is that in the winter when everything is frozen over around us, we should turn to the ocean. And then when everything turns green in summer, why don't we just serve vegetable in that period? And then when the leaves fall from the trees, we should do what the tradition dictates, which is to go to the forest and, and be, take part of the hunt. And just that little questioning gave us a whole new, fresh approach to how to cook and serve our menus and how to have creativity. And it fueled us. And it actually sprouted what I would consider the most important creative period that we've had in the last 20 years, which is the last four and a half years of NOMA. And maybe it's also something to do with the fact that we're sort of mature now. We think better. We work together in a better way. There's less chaos. You know, we're, we're just more together when we work. And the team that's around myself, particularly in the test kitchen, the one who's been there the shortest amount of time is eight years. And the one who's been there the longest is 15. So, you know, there's this trust as well in the team. And a certain level of trust in ourselves as well. But it was daunting, scary, but I would do it again. Renee, as, as one pages through the book, it's clear how the experience of both Mexico and Japan have left their imprint on you. Could you maybe take one dish and parse out how you transform those experiences of being away into dishes served at the restaurant? The one serving that immediately comes to mind is the celeriac shavarma. And the reason why that comes to mind is because this goes back to the first time I went to Mexico. It was in 2006, and I arrived late at night. It was actually in Merida. And back then, Merida was a real dusty, sort of a sleepy town where nothing really was happening. And Late at night, I was hungry after a long flight, and we went and had pastor. I'd never tried it before. And it was just this incredible moment for me to try something that was so different to what I knew as shavarma from back home in Europe. My family, they're Albanians, and so we grew up with a lot of Turkish food. And, you know, I'd had these type of foods before, but this was just something completely different. And so having a pastor in Mexico at that time always made me think, how can we do something like that, but in Denmark. And it wasn't until like 15, 16 years later, when we have our first vegetarian season, 
And I asked Meta, uh, she's the head of the test kitchen, can't we do this in a vegetarian fashion? How, how would that look if meat was replaced with some sort of vegetable? And um, that is arguably one of our most iconic servings in the past four years, the Salariac Shavarma, and also one of the most successful ones. And funny enough, now that you also ask about what effect Japan had in our kitchen, well, in the Salariac Shavarma, where the inspiration is from a pastor in Merida, all, you know, it's sliced uh, celeriac. In between the layers, there's all these ferments and pastes, all these umami potent liquids that we've created over the last 15, 20 years. And you could say that that is actually a direct inspiration from the many trips I've had to Japan. So it just is a perfect fusion of the journeys and the two countries besides Denmark that I probably love the most uh, on earth, which is Mexico and Japan. Um, so the duck brain tempura and duck heart tartare, it, it may not be for the faint of heart, but the name alone kind of made me stop in my tracks. Mm-hmm. Can you talk to us about that one? One of the main mantras we've always had at the restaurant is, of course, we wish to serve everything when uh, we have animals uh, on the menu. And we only have animals on the menu when it's game season. And so we're always trying to think, how can we serve everything and not let anything go to waste? And believe me, it would be so much easier not to serve that duck brain because it's, a, it's actually quite complicated to get the brain out of a duck's skull. But we do it and it's delicious. You know, our guests, the average modern Scandinavian guest today, we all need to open our minds a little bit more and eat some more different things so that it's not just all wagyu steak and brownies you were at the hollywood farmers market a few weeks ago signing books i know that you can get your hands on anything at 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 the restaurant but are there any particular california ingredients that you covet and are more difficult for you to get all the citrus that uh that was uh, starting to go into market uh be at the market now that was incredible and then I tasted this wild persimmon, a tiny little persimmon that I'd never seen before. But just in general, I think people who live in California, you guys, you are probably used to it. But when you live in a place where winter you know, arrives sometime in October and leaves you, perhaps anywhere from April to May, it's mind-blowing to go down a Hollywood farmer's market at the end of November and see all that abundance. And if I could choose one family of things to have with me, I would choose all the citrus fruit. I love that. I've been incredibly lucky to receive a couple of your pantry products, the mushroom garum, and then more recently I received this rose vinegar, which is Mm -hmm. just... Absolutely extraordinary. I, I would imagine that as soon as they were available, they were sold out. What made you decide to offer some products? Well, this is a long conversation for probably a different time. But as soon as the pandemic hit, we made some major decisions for Noma in the future. And, uh, you know, more on that later, but one of the ones, uh, one of the ideas that we wanted to play around with was 
is there any appetite for anything Noma that's not a restaurant meal? And uh, that's why we started Noma Projects to see it. And now we're just, you know, in, in testing mode, you, you should say, because the products that we have, they're so complex to make. I mean, you talk about the rose vinegar, every single rose petal, and there's only five petals on a wild rose. They have been hand forged, <laughs> and then we make uh, vinegar from that. So you can imagine the amount of labor that goes into it and the few bottles that we have. And when it comes to something like mushroom garum, which is much, much simpler and easier to make, but it's still, you know, anywhere from three to six months process of brewing mushrooms into an umami sauce. So, but this is, this is the beginning of a transformation that's coming soon for Noma. So exciting. Thank you so much, Renee. Thank you. That's Rene Rizzeppi. His latest cookbook, Noma 2.0, Vegetable Forest Ocean, is out now. This week, he announced that Noma 3.0 is coming soon. So as we say in my line of work, stay tuned. Coming up, imagine starting a blog with your parents. Ten years ago, the Leung sisters launched The Walks of Life with their mom and dad. How the blog went from family project to cookbook deal, next. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Welcome back to Good Food. Imagine if each of your family members had the ability to focus on one part of your heritage cuisine deeply enough to teach it. So you formed a team to share recipes, gardening tips, and stories with millions of people, newbies to the cuisine, as well as immigrants missing a taste of home. Meet the Leungs, whose blog and now book, Walks of Life, that's W-O-K-S, serves up inspiration for all of us. Daughters Sarah and Caitlin join us today. Hi, ladies. Hi, Evan. Hi, Evan. Thank you for having Thank us. Thank you so much for having us. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm so happy that you're both here. Sarah, could you tell us a bit about Caitlin and what her role is in Walks of Life? Yeah, so I think we have all sort of carved out our own roles uh, in the blog, and it kind of helps us work together uh, harmoniously. And for my sister, Caitlin, on the blog, like sort of the business side of things, she is our social media manager. She's also managing our video uh, presence, so YouTube and stuff like that. And uh, when it comes to recipes, she is our master of condiments. So homemade chili oil, exo sauce, things like that. And she's also sort of like the, I don't know, I guess like the mad genius kind of semi-chaotic, but she comes up with really cool ideas for new recipes, stepping away a little bit away from tradition sometimes. But when it comes to condiments, I feel like she's solidly like in the pocket on traditional stuff. So it's it's a little bit of a mix of everything. And now, Caitlin, would you do the same about Sarah? So Sarah is my older sister, and she really lives up to the title. Um, so on the walks of life, Sarah's definitely um, the pusher. I would say she makes sure that we're all on track and that things get done. And she's like, 
kind of the the main point person in terms of day-to-day operations of the blog, making sure that things get done on time and that we're all sort of on the same page. Um, and Sarah was actually the one who was the primary founder of the blog. She she got us up and running on the internet back in the day when we first started. And um, in terms of the kinds of cooking that she does, she is like the queen of all things like quick and easy. She's very much all about efficiency. As she would say, efficiency runs through her veins. So um, she's really great at making like easy like stir fries with just like a little bit of meat and vegetables on a weeknight and thinking through ways to like you know, similar to me, I guess, we both kind of occupy this headspace, I guess, of thinking of different ways to evolve traditional cooking methods uh, from Chinese cuisine. And now tell us about your parents. Yeah, so our parents, Bill and Judy, are, uh, I mean, they they were the original sort of brain trust of the blog. Before my sister and I knew how to cook Chinese food, they were the primary teachers And our job was kind of just translating their knowledge into really clear recipes for people to follow. And now that we've all kind of become proficient Chinese cooks, uh, I think my parents occupy this sort of space of a a traditional space. Like my mom, her recipes speak to her upbringing in China, in Shanghai, the memories that she grew up with. And also uh, she has this really deep respect for all Chinese regional cooking and sort of exploring those avenues and keeping tradition alive. My dad actually grew up cooking in restaurants with his father and stepfather, who were both restaurant chefs. And his parents actually eventually opened a Chinese restaurant in New Jersey, and my dad helped out at that restaurant pretty often on the weekends. So he brings that sort of Chinese-American takeout cooking knowledge, as well as his parents were Cantonese, so he also brings a lot of traditional Cantonese recipes to the table. When you mix all of us together, it's a, it's a really good combination, and I think it, um, it kind of speaks to different aspects of the Chinese-American experience. Do you remember what the first recipe you ever po- posted was on the blog? I do. It was it was a it was called Simple Spicy Pan Fried Noodles and it was kind of a go-to after-school snack that my sister and I grew up making every day after school. It was probably arguably one of the only like quote-unquote Chinese dishes that we knew how to make and our mom taught us how to make it. It's basically pan-fried noodles um, with sesame oil, soy sauce, maybe a little bit of chili sauce if you want. If if you're not into spicy food, you don't have to put any on. Maybe a little bit of white pepper. You mix it up and enjoy it. It's super simple and um, was definitely the first the first recipe we ever posted because it was so easy. And, and um, Caitlin, what about the most recent one? Uh, the most recent recipe... Um... <laughs> It's all a blur. Uh, A recent recipe that we posted is actually kind of an interesting one because it's a Chinese-American takeout classic, but classic depending on who you ask. It's called War Wonton Soup. I love War Wonton Soup. Oh, you see? Okay, so you're, you're one of the people who knows what it is, but depending on what region you're in... Some people are like war, war what? Like what? What are you talking about? Like they just think of wonton soup with you know just wontons floating in broth. But 
this version of it is it's kind of like a mixed or like a combination wonton soup and it has shrimp and toss you or barbecue pork and like pieces of carrot and bok choy so it's like definitely a full meal all on its own and yeah people are really liking it, that it's a blast from the past of sorts and it's been cool to see in the comments of people kind of debating like where you might find it and where it's most common and where it might have originated yeah it's like something from my childhood in the 60s when there was more Cantonese food being served in restaurants than there is now. Yes. Well, definitely when Cantonese food was dominant. Another term that we've heard for it is subgum wonton soup, which in Cantonese, that means like 10 brocades, which is essentially like a really fancy way of saying like varied, like it has numerous varied ingredients. So there's lots of different names for uh, this dish. And, you know, I've heard other people say, oh, in my restaurant, it's called combination wonton soup, or in my restaurant, it's called house wonton soup. On the blog, it's just really interesting to hear from readers from across the country and around the world um, about what sort of Chinese takeout looks like for them locally and how it differs from region to region. As a family, do, do you guys ever order Chinese takeout? Oh, yeah. For yeah, sure. No, we're... we're <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, we get lazy too, as much as the next person. And we love ordering out from a local Chinese takeout place. Um, I would say our family order is like, we go for beef and broccoli usually. Um, can't say no to sesame chicken. I don't know, Caitlin, what else do you think? Oh my God, I'm blanking on it. Oh, the Singapore May Fun. So like the Singapore noodles is is one of my mom's favorites. Gotta have a hot and sour soup. I'll also say that it's not just about laziness. Like, we actually, like, love Americanized Chinese food in the same way that we love Chinese food from the different provinces of China. It's something that we crave, and I think that it's common to sort of hear people be, like, scoffing about those dishes. And, you know, it's a, it's its own genre, I guess I'll say, but we definitely love it all the same. It's food that we grew up with, too. So let's talk about food for a minute. Um, I would love for each of you to um, to tell us about a recipe that you contributed to the book that you really, really want us to make. Um, I'm sure you're at a point by now um, where you see some people making things right away and over and over, and maybe some other recipes aren't getting a lot of love. I will do a plug for one of my own recipes, which is shortcut dandan noodles. And... For anybody who doesn't know what it is, dandan noodles are like the most addictively spicy, umami, like bowl of noodles that you'll probably ever eat. And there's there's loads of chili oil, there's some sesame paste, um, there's ground pork and like a salty preserved vegetable that kind of goes over the top as like a condiment. It's like incredible. But it's not the easiest to make, especially not on a casual weeknight. It's a project. But the shortcut method in the book is that you pre-make a sauce. So you spend like, you know, like an hour and a half on a weekend making this sauce that gives you enough for like 20 servings. So down the road, you just boil noodles, you grab it from the refrigerator, mix up your sauce, and then spoon it over the noodles, mix it up, and like that's your meal sorted. And it really does not taste at all like you took any shortcuts. I just think it's like a great all-around recipe that has the ability to build 
your confidence in Chinese cooking. Like when you make that bowl of noodles, you're like, wow, this is impressive. <laughs> like that this came out of my home kitchen. And and what about you, Sarah? Yeah, I have uh, similar feelings about uh, one of my recipes in the book, which is um, it's in the dim sum chapter. Chapter. It's actually the opening recipe of the book, and it's pork and shrimp shumai. And I think people will be really shocked at how easy it is to create um, like a restaurant quality dim sum item at home. If you have a stand mixer, you don't necessarily have to use a stand mixer. You can hand mix it as well. But if you have a stand mixer, that's really it. You just kind of put all the ingredients into a mixer and let it go to whip up the filling. And then you use store-bought thin Hong Kong-style dumpling wrappers and fill them, steam them, and like that's it. And they're just delicious. I mean, I would put them up against any uh, restaurant's shumai. So I, I think people will just be sort of, again, like to echo what my sister said, uh, surprised at what they're able to create in their own kitchen. Well, thank you so much. Um, I mean, just enjoy all the success and attention that you're getting. I'm sure more is on the way. Thank you so much. This was such a great conversation. Yeah, thank you so much, Evan. That's Sarah and Caitlin Leung. Together with their parents, they've written The Walks of Life, Recipes to Know and Love from a Chinese-American Family, a cookbook. We've got recipes for their shortcut dandan noodles and pork and shrimp shumai on our website. That's kcrw.com slash goodfood. Before blogs, before TikTok, what did a viral recipe look like? Consider the Chinese chicken salad, an improvisational dish conceived for a celebrity guest in an L.A. restaurant five decades ago. It is now a staple on fast casual menus across America. The salad's creator, Sylvia Wu, was a larger-than-life personality in the L.A. food scene. She died last October at the age of 106, and Tejal Rao, critic at large at the New York Times, joins us to talk about her legacy. Welcome. Thank you. Hi, Evan. Hi. So who was Sylvia Wu? Sylvia Wu was an immigrant from China who ended up opening a restaurant in Santa Monica in 1959, in part because... She just wasn't really thrilled with the food at American Chinese restaurants at the time. And she had this idea. And even though, you know, her husband thought it was a terrible idea, he did lend her $10,000 to start the business. She had this idea to open a Chinese restaurant that was a little bit more like the restaurants she had loved going to in Hong Kong with her mother-in-law and with her mother-in-law's friends, a little bit more extravagant and fun and flashy, not quite like the chop suey houses that, that were all around L.A. at the time. And she ended up creating a room, the design of a room that later became um, duplicated by many non-Chinese restaurateurs. What was the sort of essential look that she created? I mean, it might feel very familiar now, but, you know, at the time, 
most Chinese restaurants were a little bit more simple and basic. And she had this idea to make it appear very kind of palatial, luxurious, to have um, lots of Chinese art and architectural flourishes, waterfalls, um, just as extravagant as possible. And so when she first opened her restaurant, it was just a little tiny space with a few tables and chairs and no decor. But after a few years, when business picked up, she invested in a 11,000 square foot space that was just soaring. Really, really extravagant lighting fixtures. Yes, I read about the, the piece, like an architectural piece that was hanging on the ceiling and would kind of flutter and make it look like there was gold moving along the ceiling. I haven't seen it. I've only read about it, but I can imagine it was very beautiful. And she herself had impeccable style. Paint a picture of this um, marvelous woman. You know, I never got to meet her myself, but I've watched some interviews and seen photos. And she used to wear impeccably tailored clothing, and she would wear these really fun, oversized, tinted glasses, lots of sparkling cocktail rings. For a while, she drove a Rolls-Royce Silver Cloud with a vanity plate that read Madame Wu on the plate, so she did embrace that nickname. you got to love it. Um, <laughs> you describe her career as a restaurateur as kinetic, profound, and always strategic. Give us some examples about that. Yeah, you know, Sylvia Wu, I, I think some people thought of her as bringing authentic Chinese food to Los Angeles. And in a sense, she did do that. But she also had these kind of genius ideas that were kind of built more on adapting or interpreting or adjusting traditional dishes for Los Angeles. One of them was her Peking duck you know, really good Peking duck. You make it by air drying the skin so that when you do cook it, it gets very, very crisp. But ducks have a lot of fat on their bodies. So under that crisp layer of skin, there's usually a cushion of um, softer, more gelatinous fat, which is very delicious. There's nothing wrong with that. But in an effort to sort of appeal to people who might be on diets or worried about consuming more fat, she came up with what she called her lower fat peking duck. And to make that, she just rendered the fat for much longer than you would usually do and let a lot of the excess fat kind of melt away. So there was still some fatty skin on her peking duck. It was just a little bit thinner than usual. And I just think that was such a smart way to appeal to, you know, the era, her diners, and entice them to come in and try other dishes. You know, she also had uh, winter melon soup and abalone soup, mapo tofu, sweet and sour whole fish. So she kind of used the Peking duck as a way of um, introducing people to so many other dishes as well. Tell us the story of her Chinese chicken salad. It is such an L.A. story. <laughs> yeah, it's, and I have to say, there's, I'm sure there's a little bit of um, restaurant mythology involved. Uh, but, you know, this, the way that the story goes is that her regulars included Elizabeth Taylor, Robert Redford, Frank Sinatra, and Cary Grant. And one evening, Cary Grant apparently asked her for a Chinese-style chicken salad. And she wasn't entirely sure what he meant by that. Um, so she made up a dish on the fly that was sort of 
loosely based on a banquet dish that she had as a child. She sliced up wonton skins and fried them until they were crispy. She fried uh, rice noodles, shredded and poached some chicken, shredded lettuce, and then made a dressing that is very familiar to us now of scallions, mustard, soy sauce, some toasted almonds, some sesame oil, and kind of tossed it all together for Cary Grant. And he thought it was great. I love it. I love that the chicken saw that we're eating today <laughs> came about because of Cary Grant and Madame Wu. <laughs> and she knew, you know, she knew she had a hit on her hands. She did. She put it on the menu right away. She published the recipe in some local newspapers. She published the recipe in her first cookbook. She, she knew she had a hit. Hers is such an L.A. story. She came here, she reinvented herself and her food, she mingled with celebrities, and then she became a star. And yet in the food world, I don't think she's a household name, for example, like Cecilia Chang is. Why do you think, why do you think that is? Yeah, I, you know, I, I, I'm not sure what the answer is, but that's a really interesting question. You know, she wasn't the only person doing this work, you know, in the 1950s and 60s. There was Cecilia Chang in San Francisco, and then there was also, um, around the same time, Joyce Chen in Boston opened her restaurant in 1958. So she was part of this wave of people who were really doing a lot of work to expand Americans' ideas around Chinese cuisine. I'm not sure why there, there hasn't been I don't know, there haven't been as many stories written about her. There hasn't been as much press around her, but she certainly made an impact. Yeah, it's amazing, these women who had such confidence and such a sense of vision of what they were doing. So impressive. Thank you so much, Tejal. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Evan. That was Tejal Rao. She's a critic at large at the New York Times. We've been talking about the life and legacy of restaurateur, author, cooking instructor, and innovator Sylvia Wu. She died last year at the age of 106. In a minute, what does it mean to otolengify a dish? Find out when Good Food continues. You're listening to Good Food on KCRW. I'm Evan Kleiman. In modern jargon, being extra isn't necessarily a good thing. It signifies drama, excessiveness, and sheer over-the-top behavior. But when you're in an Otolenghi kitchen, being extra is a good thing. Noor Murad and Yotam Otolenghi are back with new recipes, and they believe the extras are where the fun begins. Hello. Hi, good to talk Hello. to you. It's great to have you both. So are extras basically condiments or do they, or are they side dishes? How do you um, sort of identify what they are? I'd say the extras are, are, are the condiments. So we've kind of divided in the book the extras into different chapters. So we have like pickles and ferments and anything funky um, in a chapter. We have all the different sauces that you can take out of a meal. So anything dupable, dippable or scoopable or spoonable. Um, and there's also the crunchy things, so the sprinkles and, and any nuts and seeds. Um, and there's the fresh things as well. So like the salsas and the pestos, anything that livens up a meal. And also there's the, the infused oils um, that we use a lot in Octolengi cooking. So, you know, I have to say, um, Yotam, that your 
you really know how to use TikTok. So many pe- <laughs> people that we refer to as like cooking icons or celebrity chefs really don't get it. <laughs> and I like yours. They're very quick and casual. And you talk, I love how you refer to yourself. So you talk about Otolengifying something. <laughs> I know it's it does it does mess your head about around a little bit because when you cook something that is not otolengi enough, um, <laughs> what does it mean about you, right? Like it's it's quite profound. So uh, <laughs> in some senses, it is a bit weird. But I suppose what it is is that it goes beyond me. It goes to everyone in the test kitchen, nor included, and everyone everybody that works for our company. We always wreck our brains to find a way to um, make things exciting, make things different, give th- give dishes a twist, a kind of an unusual outfit to make them feel a bit more special. And that's what we mean by autolengifying, which uh, that's the kind of, that's the nature of the thing. So if we have like a, a grilled tomato salsa, or if we have like a, a kind of a, a dried fig and pistachio salsa, I'm just actually looking at the screens and these are kind of shouting at me how beautiful and colorful they are. It means that it does save you time or it opens up an, a range of ideas for, for cooking. And that's what we mean by autolengifying. And nor even went one step further and got it into the urban dictionary as a, as a verb to autolengify your food. So if, if people want to understand what it really means, they can go there and, and search it up. That's hilarious. And and I think that, Noor, um, before we got on the air, you mentioned when, during our, um, our sound check that your favorite comfort food is a bowl of, of rice with yogurt. And when I think about that, that just super comforting textural bowl, these kind of extras are like perfect for putting on top of that. So pick one for me that's become a go-to extra for you for that bowl of rice and yogurt. Um, okay, well, one of the extras um, is these zaatar tomatoes. So they're cherry or datarini tomatoes that are kind of slow cooked in olive oil until they kind of gently burst uh, with a little bit of balsamic vinegar, some sugar, and loads of herbaceous zaatar. And then we also stir in fresh herbs like parsley and oregano into it. And you're left with these beautiful tomatoes that you can spoon onto so many things um, from like um, bruschetta with some lebne. Um, in the book, we serve it over a baked polenta, but it would be so good on my beautiful bowl of steaming hot rice with yogurt as well. So, um, Yotam, you mentioned in the sound check um, <laughs> a dish that was extremely <laughs> specific. It was a, let me see if I can remember, a sautéed prawn. There was garlic somewhere in the description with celery <laughs> So tell me how this dish reveals something extra. <laughs> so uh, the, the dish is a butter poached prawns with celeriac or celery root, as you call it here, and a herb paste. So it's a, it's a, it's a paste of parsley and chives and shallots and a bit of lemon juice. And, um, and it's just, it's, it's a kind of a, it's, um, it's super fresh and you add it to something that's it's quite rich and the celery root with the prawns and the butter is quite rich. So it kind of these dots of freshness just kind of liven it up. Uh, but obviously the same herb paste that I just mentioned can go over so many other things. Any roasted vegetables that they've spent time in the oven or under the grill and need kind of something fresh added to them 
you, you take that. And one of the things that uh, we talk a lot about in this book and we did in the previous book is the ability to really adapt your recipes. So that herb paste is a blueprint to so many other herb paste. So although we use parsley mainly there, parsley and, shall- and chives, uh, to create that herb paste, you can use other herbs, obviously, that you have there, soft herbs like dill or cilantro or mint. And those would, would do the same thing for you. And throughout the kind of talking about this book, we say to everyone, you know, in this day and age where things are so expensive, never, ever get rid of a, a bunch of herbs that goes a bit, woof, you know, not, 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 I've seen better days. Just split them up, uh, add some garlic and uh, add some oil and put them in a jar in the fridge and carry on using it like a pesto. Such a great idea. You know, here in Southern California, we're really used to eating both um, chili crisp and um, salsa matcha, sort of the the Mexican um, version of seeds in, in oil. And I was really interested to see your seedy mix because it's so similar to a salsa matcha, but with a totally different flavor profile. Can you describe what's in it to us? So it's got caraway seeds, earth chili, uh, some sweetness from maple syrup or honey and some olive oil. And uh, it's, it's kind of like, um, so it's, it's nutty and, hot and spicy, but it's also got that kind of sweetness. And um, in the book, uh, Noor made these uh, kak, which are like uh, uh, pita breads uh, that are covered in sesame seeds and then uh, stuffed with cheese. Uh, which is just like feta and halloumi. And so it goes like really, um, it's kind of really salty and rich. And the seedy mix with its sweetness, uh, just it's kind of, you, you dip that in there and it's just to die for. It's just so delicious. And obviously that seed mix could be used for a number of other things. I mean, most breads can be dipped in it, but this particular one with a, with a cheese, it's just perfection. Can you describe uh, what Urfa pepper is? So Urfa chili is a type of chili or Urfa pepper, wherever you are, is um, and it's kind of it's quite mild and fruity, and I'd say a bit smoky, um, and it's just a wonderful addition to add to so many different dishes. If you're not, if you want the heat uh, without being too overly spicy, and it's just a stunning color. It's nearly black. Yeah, yeah, and it gives, when you disperse it in, in oil or in butter, or it just gives this kind of dramatic color to, to the oil. And also, it, it's beautiful when it's sprinkled just, just raw. Again, you get that kind of intense, dark, kind of smoky, chocolatey flavor. And it's, it's just so beautiful to use. I want to thank both of you um, for taking the time for us. We really appreciate it once again. It's just such a lovely, useful book. Thank you for having us. Thank you. It was so good talking to you. Always. That's Noor Murad and Yodam Odalangi. They're upping the ante in the condiment game with the latest addition to their Odalangi Test Kitchen series, Extra Good Things. What's extra good at the farmer's market this week? Let's head to Santa Monica to find out. Jillian Ferguson is there now with her report. 
This is Jillian Ferguson with the Market Report. I am very happy to be kicking off the new year at the Santa Monica Farmers Market today with Chef Zara Khan, who is the newly minted executive chef at Rustic Canyon in Santa Monica. Zara, the last time we spoke, you were at Botanica, and it is great to see you on the west side now. Hi. Hi. Thank you for having me. Very happy to be here. Well, congrats on the new job. Thank you. Thank you. So Rustic Canyon has become known as a place where you can go for innovative vegetable-forward cuisine, and you are definitely carrying that torch. Mm-hmm. I'd love to talk about a dish you have on the menu right now that is chicken and carrots. Yes. Tell us about it. Yes. Um, so, I don't know. I mean, Chef Fox and I both love carrots, and the old set had carrots, but I sort of was like, how can we turn up the dial on the, like, carrot <laughs> representation on this dish? Um, and so I think it's there, like in three or four different iterations, which is always like fun to see how many ways you can put something on a plate to me. <laughs> for sure, for sure. So walk us through each iteration. How does it work? Okay, so first is the carrot muhammara. Muhammara is traditionally like red pepper and walnut and there's like herbs and it's not really dippy, but like a spread kind of. And so I was like, I'll just make this with carrots instead of peppers. And then there is carrot molasses. We're all sort of familiar with pomegranate molasses. Chef Fox has a recipe for beet molasses. And I was like, well, if we can make any sort of juice into a molasses, like, let me do this. So, yeah, so I cooked down carrots with sugar and vinegar and a little bit of salt until it can coat the back of a spoon, essentially. It's carrot molasses. And then there's also carrot top yogurt, which is just like mint and carrot tops that are blanched and then you know, Vitamix into like a lovely herby yogurt situation. And then there's also (laughs) roasted carrots that are sort of tossed in the carrot molasses. So they're like really nice and glazed and shiny and then roasted. And yeah, those are also on the dish. (laughs) Wow. I love this so much. What, whose carrots are you using from the market? They're from the Garden of. We're using Nance from them and also Kyoto carrots, which are a new thing for me. They're like this really beautiful red carrot that's sort of a more concentrated like carroty flavor. A little bit more of like, I don't know, the bite is like more solid I think than a Nance. Nance have like a nice snap to them and they're just sort of a more dense, delicious carrot. What do people need to know about using carrot tops at home? I mean, use them. I feel like there's so many, like so many farmers here at the market will have like a bucket under their table full of carrot tops. I think that they're really sort of a great substitution for like herbs in any sort of thing, like put them in a salad. I like to make zug with them a lot too. We also dehydrate them and mix them into our za'atar at Rustic. They're very versatile, I feel like. Don't be scared to like use them in in place of an herb anywhere. And would it be like in place of parsley or a different kind of herb? Yeah, yeah, parsley for sure is the most direct sub. Um, Yeah. They're just, they're great. (laughs) Well, such a good idea for using the whole vegetable. Thank you so much, Zara. Thank you for having me. That was Zara Khan. She is the executive chef at Rustic Canyon, which is just up the street from the Santa Monica Farmer's Market on Wilshire Boulevard. You can find that carrot and chicken dish on the menu right now. If you're in California or have been watching the news, you know that we've been experiencing some extreme weather events this past week. Paul Thurston is the farmer behind Lauerbacher Farms in Ventura. He made his debut selling his produce at the Wednesday Santa Monica Farmer's Market last week. And Paul, I'm pretty impressed that you made it here today because a lot of farmers actually decided not to come after this rain. Yeah, it was a lot of work. Believe me, a lot of effort. And as you can see, we're almost selling out. It's, uh, what, 9 o'clock? And we just... By the time we picked all this stuff for the restaurants that they had pre-ordered, uh, it was the end of the day, and we just crammed in a couple hours and made enough to show up. But, yeah, it would have been nice to have had more time. Yeah, so what does the farm look like after the rain? 
like a mud puddle. I mean, it's, yeah, it's very, very muddy. Uh, the tops of everything is green, you know, it gives every, washes everything off. But just water everywhere. It's, uh, when you get that much water, it, it can't drain, and it's just sitting there. Right. It's going to take a day or two to drain out. But yeah, you just, you have to do it. It's, it's, uh, you need a tractor to go out and pick your things up in the fields. Whereas when it's, you know, nice and normal weather, uh, you can walk it into where you wash it and box it up. Yeah. So you grow row crops, meaning you've got carrots on the table, beets, you've got herbs, a lot of greens. What does a weather event like this do to the ones that you maybe aren't ready to harvest yet? The babies in the ground, are they going to be okay? Yeah, yeah, they, I think they're going to be fine. They hang in there. It's, it's amazing how sturdy a plant is. A little, you know, this little seedling pushing through the ground, uh, it pushes them down in the dirt a little bit. Like I, I think our, la our last planting's taken a little bit longer to show up. They pushed, pushed it down in a little deeper. But once it pops, uh, they can handle it. How much rain do you think you received this last week? You know, we got about four and a half inches, I think, yeah. And are you on well water or do you rely on a reservoir? We have the city water and we have well water, yeah, both. So we use our well water uh, as much as we can, but it's been really low. And so then you get put over on city water and you have uh, limits. And if you go over them, it's very expensive. So despite all the mud, this is all good news, all this rain. Yeah, it's, it really is. It's great. Yeah, you can cuss all day and sleep easy. Yeah. I love that. So as uh, the water keeps coming, what do we have to look forward to from you at Lauerbacher in the next month or so? Well, we're coming out. We finally got some peas that sprouted. So we have some pea greens coming and we've got some green garlic today. Um, broccoli. We got some baby broccoli coming and these kalets. That's the new product there. Um, it's a Brussels sprout crossed with kale. Uh -huh. So you get a, an open a little kale, a little kalette, I guess is what, you, what they're called, kalettes. Okay, great. Well, it sounds like spring is already arriving at Lauerbacher, and you'll be here every Wednesday from now on, right? That is the plan, yes. Thank you so much, Paul. Thank you, Jillian. That was Paul Thurston, farmer behind Lauerbacher Farms. It's an organic farm up in Camarillo. You can find Paul selling his vegetables every Wednesday at the downtown Santa Monica Farmer's Market, as well as Saturdays at the Pico Farmer's Market. For The Market Report, I'm Jillian Ferguson. Coming up, what started as a pop-up in a garage in La Cañada, Flint Ridge, is now a hit restaurant in Melrose Hill. Find out what's on the menu at Cuya Lord when we return. I'm Evan Kleiman, and this is Good Food. Lord Maynard Yera honed his craft at Bastia, and at the H. Wood Group, where he served as executive chef. But his dream was to open a humble Filipino noodle shop. So he started hosting occasional pop-ups around Los Angeles. Then came the pandemic, and Yera transformed Kuya Lord into a full-tilt takeout venture, operating from the garage of his La Cañada Flint Ridge home. Last summer, he went legit and debuted a storefront at the corner of Melrose and Western. Los Angeles Times restaurant critic Bill Addison is a fan. Hi, Bill. Hi, Evan. I am a fan. Yeah, I remember that you first tried and wrote about Kriya Lord in 2021 when it was a pop-up. How has the menu evolved and expanded? Interestingly, it's a fairly seamless transition from the Filipino 
dishes, the versions, the in very individual versions of Filipino dishes that Yira was cooking out of his home in La Cañada, Flint Ridge. We're talking about things like chicken grilled over very fragrant almond wood and um, variations of pork belly, um, shell on prawns and a garlicky crab sauce, garlic rice, um, anointed with annatto oil, um, smoky tangles of noodles. And it's often served arrayed over banana leaves, which is uh, in the spirit of kamayan, the communal meals of the Philippines, often eaten by hand. Um, he has a unique take on lechon. Tell us about it. He calls it Lucenachon after the town he's from. It's really more in line with porchetta. He rolls pork belly into a cylinder and stuffs its center with lemongrass stalks and fennel fronds and spears of red onion. And when you're carving through, you go through these layers of meat and then lush fat and skin. And it's so great to have this in the restaurant as glassy and crunchy as the skin is meant to be rather than steaming in a takeout container. The restaurant's also known for its kuya trays, which are big platters that are meant to be shared. What's on the trays? What are some of the choices we get when we order them? Sure. So this is definitely a continuation of the format that he started during the pandemic. And it's a nice way to share with one or two other people. He doesn't overload you. It's not a huge picnic like it was when he was doing the takeout. You get the rice, the pansit chami, uh, a kind of handful of cucumber tomato salad, um, pickled green papaya, which is so good for kind of cutting through the rich meats that you often get. So you'll get the rolled pork belly like we talked about or a variation with twice cooked pork belly, more in rectangles and, and like extra layered crunch prawns and the garlic crab sauce. There's a beautiful yellow tail fish collar also grilled over almond wood like the chicken. And he keeps it concise. It's good. It's a, he's got a real control over what he's doing in the restaurant. And it's nice to see that right away, every dish is masterful. So let's talk about the, the pancit for a minute, because after all, he did want to open a noodle shop and they are noodles. Um, how is he making them and does he have more than one variation? At the moment, he really specializes in the one. They're fat, flattish egg noodles, and he'll toss them with slivered vegetables in a very hot wok. It's the image I have of him cooking Pansi Chami when I walked up to his house and saw him in his converted garage where he was cooking over the wok. So it's nice to see him in his own space doing the same thing now. Um, so he he posts on Instagram, and the food always looks fantastic. The in particular, the wagyu oxtail kari kari is um, especially appealing. Mm -hmm. um, is this an occasional dish that shows up as a special? It is, but he's also still keeping a foot as he grows his restaurant business in catering, and the easiest way to sample the oxtail kari kari is probably by ordering it 
as a feast to share with some friends at home. The nice thing about that dish is that it translates really well into carryout, but it's, it's incredible. And it was the dish that floored me most probably when I first tried his cooking a couple years ago. The ground peanut sauce has bagung, which is a fermented seafood paste that he makes himself. And it's garlicky too. And so it's all like, there's funk, but there's a lot of balance and there's brightness. And it's really incredible. Well, thank you so much, Bill. Thank you, Evan. That was LA Times restaurant critic Bill Addison discussing Kuya Lord. You'll find the uber popular Filipino restaurant in Melrose Hill at the corner of Melrose and Western. Want to read more about it? Just go to our website for a link to Bill's review. That's at kcrw.com slash goodfood. If you missed any of today's show, listen at kcrw.com slash goodfood or on KCRW's mobile app. You can also subscribe on Apple Podcasts, on Stitcher, or Spotify. My thanks to the Good Food team, Jillian Ferguson, Laryl Garcia, Elena Shatkin, Desmond Taylor, Nick Lamponi, and PJ Shahamat. And special thanks to Chrissy Van Meter, Laura Kondarajan, and Gary Masiha. I'm Evan Kleinman. When it rains, it spores. Have you seen all the mushrooms popping up around L.A.? I'll be back next week with an all-new episode of Good Food.